You're listening to Speaking of Racism, the podcast dedicated to frank, honest, and respectful discussions about race and racism in the U.S. I'm your host, Jen Kinney. Pull up a chair and let's talk. Special thanks to Grapes for the music. The song is I Don't Know featuring Jay Lang. Thanks for tuning in to today's show. For those of you who have been with me since Ushi's speaking, you may have heard this podcast already. But for those of you who are new to this podcast, welcome. I'm sharing a conversation with you today that I had with Cedric Lundy from the podcast Token Confessions. This is part one of two, and I hope you enjoy. So today I want to welcome Cedric Lundy. You have recently started a podcast called Token Confessions. And I would love to hear all about that in terms of what what gave you the idea, why you started it, what your goal is. So the idea was that um, I'm I'm the quote-unquote token black guy. So I have been the black face in the white space for pretty much all of my growing up and adulthood. Um, my parents uh, decided to leave the church that we were in, that I was in as a toddler, and look for a church where primarily their kids could get discipled and there was actual authority over the leadership at the church. They had a bad experience with the leadership. So mm-hmm. as it turned out, the church that they found that checked all those boxes just happened to be an all-white church where we were literally the only ones. Wow. Yeah. So we were at that church for a total of 25 years. And aside from the Alexanders, it was like pretty much us and them as the only people of color or or Black folks in that church. So that's kind of set me on this path, I I suppose you could say, of going into full-time ministry where all of my church experience has been in the white evangelical world. So for me to continue my vocational ministry career in white evangelicalism has only made sense because that in a lot of ways has been my home, despite the fact that I am the other. And yet it prevented me from having these tokenized experiences. And in the recent years, I'd say It probably started around Trayvon Martin's death, but even more so in 2014 when you had Michael Ferguson, Eric Gardner, John uh, Crawford III, and then Tamir Rice all within like a four-month span. You know, these unjust murders at the hands of law enforcement and just how those things were received, I started to speak up uh, more and have continued to do so over the years which has actually led me to want to write um, a book. But some of the conversations that I was having online, friends were really benefiting from and learning a lot and uh, saying, you know, you need to either write a book or start a podcast. So another friend of mine who he has also been a black face in white evangelical spaces, uh, we decided to do it together. And that is your friend Sanchez? Yes. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he's a he's a worship pastor that I actually met through both of us being invited to speak at a, a speaker symposium that a local private Christian school had on racial reconciliation. Interesting. 
So we've just stayed in touch ever since then. And we decided, you know, we, we need to do this because we're always stirring it, ticking people off. And at the same right. time, like, we have tons of people who, I mean, I'll speak for myself. Uh, I Whether it's going to the grocery store or going to the bar or, you know, local local bar pub or private Facebook inbox messages, I've had so many people say to me, I never like or comment any of your posts, but I read all of them. And I really appreciate your approach to talking about these things. And I've actually learned a lot. And, you know, some of them have even said I've I've changed some of their thinking on these things. So I would have even been one who said you can't change anybody through a Facebook debate. But, you know, Mm -hmm. there's there's exceptions to that rule. Oh, absolutely. My my very first podcast that I did was actually inspired on that very idea. Mm-hmm. I had been involved for a period of time in conversations with a group of friends, and I just had such a positive experience with it. And mm-hmm. I found that it is a tool that if we use it for good, we can do good. But exactly. unfortunately, I think people have been dragged along on a wave, and we've been part of this experiment, and we've given into our weaker uh, sides, we'll say. And we've come to a place where we're looking at social media in a lot of ways and saying, this is not how I want to do this. And so Mm -hmm. I'm all for, you know, bringing it back. But, But the other thing that I do think that you brought up that's really important to understand is people are reading and they are watching and they are afraid to engage, Mm -hmm. which is very interesting. Yeah, it is very interesting because I think one of the similar themes that have come up in these conversations is not just what I'm saying, but how I'm engaging and interacting with the people that disagree with me, people that they would even refer to as, say, trolls. Yes. People that not only are they disagreeing with me, but they're kind of being snarky and and, and snipey about it. And it's like, you know, you hold your ground, but you never personal. You never go in and dehumanize them because they have a different viewpoint than you or that they're just plain wrong. Like you don't dehumanize them or try to tear them down. Mm -hmm. Here we are talking about race in the United States. Right. (laughs) Nobody, nobody wants to talk about this. And yet it's so important. I grew up in all white spaces. I had no concept of race. Right. So when I started waking up to this and going, okay, wow. And, and I mean, I, part of me hates the term woke, but it's so accurate because I literally feel like I had something taken off of my eyes, you know, like the scales came off my eyes and mm-hmm. I woke to everything that it was just so clear, but not to me as a white woman. And so I had to enter into my own deconstruction process in that. And I'm still deconstructing. Right. And so like my experience on the flip of that, growing up with my best friends being in the kind of environments that you just described, that kind of like being totally unaware and asleep to the realities of race. Here I am interacting with them all the time, seeing the ways in which they very much have learned to see things through race, but don't even know it. I love the way that you're talking about how you, you know, painstakingly engage people, even the trolls, 
with the utmost respect and deference to their humanity. Yeah. Well, and it helps that pretty much all of the people who are my quote unquote trolls, I lose, I use that word loosely in this case, are all people that at some point in time I've known personally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's interesting to, you know, I, I feel like we are part of an experiment in a sense with social media. Well, and you're in a you're in a unique position compared to myself because me as a pastor, I always have to be careful because what I could say could get me either fired or prevented from being hired. Right. Because historically, churches in particular, again, white evangelical churches don't want to address these right. issues. They have totally separated them from gospel, from redemption, reconciliation, and restoration. So instead, anytime that they talk about this, and I'm speaking in a generality, it's sure. from the standpoint of, well, can we all just get along? And it's like, well, you haven't even addressed the reasons why we don't get along. You right. just want to get along without actually unearthing the history so that real reconciliation can happen. And I don't know if you're familiar with Mark Charles. Yes, yes. One of the things that I love that he said at Q Conference years ago that has always stayed with me, it's like the the, the term reconciliation is not even accurate. We're talking about racial conciliation. Yes. Because for an order for it to be reconciliation, we had to at first at some point be conciliatory. And historically, given the history of race in America and that America has been set up on the principle of white supremacy dating even prior to the Declaration of Independence, uh, there's never a point in time that we were conciliatory. Right. Now, and that's interesting because I struggle with um, using terms that people can relate to, like as a broader audience. And I definitely want to use the term racial conciliation. Yes. I use the term racial reconciliation because it's kind of the term du jour. I I do the same thing. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Now, I was listening to your podcast here, the one that you guys put up, was it today, I think? Yeah. Um, and, And you said something. You said you were talking about how you need to know history. Because we don't have a common memory. And I think that is so important. And people do not understand this or realize this. And there are so many complicated elements as to why people, you know, get into, and and this will kind of lead into our conversation on um, the Red Table Talk that we're going to talk about here in a little bit. Um, Because I think it has to do with, you know, this desire to just, why can't we all get along? Why can't we just be colorblind? Why can't we just move forward, not look back? And, you know, and and all of this false equivalence, like, what do you do with all of this? (laughs) Yeah, that's where I've just become an absolute history nerd, um, Mm -hmm. in particular in regards to this kind of history about the history of how the idea of race came about, because it wasn't always uh, with us. Prior to the understanding of race, we had the understanding of ethnicity. So when you had a whole bunch of Europeans coming to this country, they weren't considered or even called white. They were called German or English or Scottish or Irish or Spanish or French or Portuguese. 
it wasn't until the racial bribe uh, post the John Punch decision and going up into historical events like Bacon's Rebellion that this idea of whiteness started to be spread to basically break the coalition of white indentured servants and black slaves against the white plantation uh, uh, planter elite. So they came to, you know, these, these, these white indentured servants and, and white lower class that were working the fields. And they said to them, Hey, you're, you're not, you're not German. You're not English. You're not Scottish. You're white. You're white like us. And the reason that you're not getting ahead isn't because we're greedy or we're keeping you from getting your just due or, you know, we're kind of getting over on you on this contract that you signed to come out here and work the land for seven years before you can get some land. Like your whole problem, the thing that is holding you back is one, the savage Indians, right? Like that, that line, savage Indians is in. Uh, the Declaration of Independence, one of their main gripes with King George was that they accused him of inciting the quote-unquote savage Indians to uh, attack them on his behalf. Like That's an accusation that he made in the Declaration of Independence. But then they also said, um, the other thing holding you back is these lazy, good-for-nothing black slaves. So like the idea that black people are lazy and don't work as hard that still persists today. It's like one of those stereotypes that still exists. Like that started all the way back when this racial bribe was first offered. Yeah. Have you read the book um, by Dr. Jacqueline Batalora, Birth of a White Nation? No. Mm -mm. Yeah. I just started reading that and she talks about the creation of race. And it was yeah. interesting because I podcasted on it briefly. I could barely touch on it, though, because it was so new to me. Yeah. Um, but it was so fascinating because the thing that I was speaking to in this was, you know, oftentimes you'll have people say, and again, this will be our red table talk here, but uh, you have people say, well, we're, there is no such thing as race. Race is a human construct. And my argument is, well, right, but it's a human construct for a reason. And yes. we need to understand that reason so that we can also fight against what that has constructed. How do we deny the power of that construction if yes. we don't even know about it? Right. Exactly. Race is biologically false. There's no study uh, that can actually prove that race is an actual biological thing. However, it is socially and politically very real. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And, and I feel a little um, conflicted, though not entirely, mm -hmm. with, you know, constantly referring to myself, I'm a white woman, you're a black man, you know, and like here, I'm aware of the fact that it's the social construct. Yes. And I, I've dedicated my life to work toward dismantling that. And yeah. at the same time, how do I, you know, I live in this tension of identifying with and identifying people. And, and you know, so I think it, it speaks again to this uh, communication at this point. Um, I think even what you just described is one of the things that we underestimate about 
the byproduct or the consequence of the racial bribe. You, in this essence, had a whole bunch of poor indentured uh, servants, poor land workers, not owners, exchange their cultural and ethnic identity in return for being able to not be on the bottom rung of a caste system. So there's a reason why here in America, white people, to you know, you're and I point, we speak people's language, but to quote James Baldwin, white people, you're not white. Right. You're, you, 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 your ancestors came from a very specific place that had a very specific culture that had, uh, you know, all these cultural divinities and uniquenesses that you have lost as a byproduct of this thing called race, this construct of race. And so, you know, that's one of the things for me that has become, I've become even more aware of because my wife is Scottish Mm -hmm. and not Scottish in the sense that, oh, you know, her parents migrated here, her family uh, migrated here, uh, you know, a couple of generations back. Like she moved here in 2004. (laughs) She is still the only member of her family uh, that lives here in the state. She had no intention of staying here uh, long term. And so all of her family is still in Scotland. She works at a British and international school. So she's very connected to her culture as a Scottish woman. And so, like, I, when we got married, during the ceremony, I wore a morning suit. But after the ceremony for the reception, which, you know, in Scotland, uh, weddings last all day. So yeah. our, our <laughs> started at 2, and the last people left the reception at 3.30 in the morning. But so basically from 4 o'clock on, um. I had, when we were done with the ceremony, I went back to the hotel and I changed into a kilt. And it was a way of honoring their culture and a way of me communicating that I am embracing the culture of my wife. Right? Wow. So yeah. here, kilts are still joked about as being a skirt. Right. Whereas there, there's a, a cultural history about it. But that, again, here in the States... Aside from culinary dishes, most quote unquote white people have no connection to their, uh, their, their cultural and ethnic, uh, uniqueness, with the exception of perhaps Italians, which there's a reason why Italians still have a strong attachment to their Italian heritage is because Italians, for the most part, weren't considered white until around after World War One. Well, you know, if when you look at some of the history of the Federal Housing Association and redlining practices and the actual list of priority of who could get a loan and who wouldn't. Um, and here's a really fascinating thing. So you had like German and Scottish and uh, English up near the top of that list. Somewhere in the middle was the northern Italians, but near the bottom right before Mexicans and Blacks was Southern Italians. Wow. And can you guess the difference, one of the main visible differences between Northern and Southern Italians? 
That is fascinating. I did not know any of that. But again, like I said, I'm still really deeply deconstructing. And Mm -hmm. it's interesting, though, because like you, I think for me, my call to action similarly was during like Trayvon Martin and watching the way the country was responding to that. And that's really when I decided that, you know, like I've got to get involved here and I've got to do something. But that's when I started digging into and learning more about just our country, our history, the experiences Mm -hmm. of people of color. And one thing that you and Sanchez talk about a lot in your podcast is the importance of proximity. Yes. People. And for me, that has not been truer. Like moving into Detroit, moving Mm -hmm. into predominantly black spaces, um, and seeking out very specifically relationships and friendships with people of color that I connect with has been the single most influential, eye-opening, beautiful thing that I could be a part of. So, so I think that's important too, is, is proximity. And yet how do we have proximity with people when we still live in such segregated ways? Yeah. And, and, And to your point, part of the reason why Sanchez and I started our podcast and felt like we had a unique voice is because we live in close proximity to white people. Like, you know, we, 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 we joked on one episode that we sleep with white women because both of us are married to a white female. Right. Um, but uh, that being said, a lot of, uh, my friends that I know who are black have remained largely very suspicious and mistrusting of white people because they don't live in close proximity to white people. Oh, absolutely. And that I have learned. So I have mm-hmm. learned that as I've grown closer in relationship with different girlfriends, you know, I have a couple of friends who will actually ask me when I bring another white woman into, you know, a social event, they will mm-hmm. ask me, so do you think she's okay? Yeah. Well, And I'm like, what? Whoa. <laughs> like I, like I wouldn't, but this is one of those relational components you don't understand until you are living life with people. Right. Yeah, Exactly. Because for us, like the last thing we need is someone well-intending colorblind putting us in a position where we're not safe. Exactly. And, And I've had, oh man, I've had an experience with that, that even weaves in that whole theme of, of learning. And, uh, I, you know, I'll, I'll just tell the story real quick. Yeah. So one of the churches that I worked at, I worked at for 10 years. It was my first year on staff and we took a staff retreat. So we're the churches in Charlotte, North Carolina. We're heading down to the Charleston area, um, at Isle of Palms for our retreat. So it's like a three hour drive. Mm-hmm. Um, all the way, we're going to stop for lunch and there's about, 10 of us on staff. So we're in two cars and the question is, where are we going to stop for lunch and preference or deference was given to uh, the ladies on staff to choose a place that they wanted to go eat lunch. So one of the ladies, she says, Oh, there's this barbecue joint um, in, in South Carolina that I've heard about that's supposed to have like best barbecue in South Carolina called Maurice's. Can we go there? 
And one of the guys in the car sitting next to me, he's like, Maurice's? You want to go to Maurice's? She's like, yeah, I've heard, you know, how the barbecue is really good there. <laughs> and he, he looks right at me and he says, Cedric, are you cool with going to Maurice's? And I said to him, dude, I've never heard of the place. I've never been there. And I'm classic nine on the Enneagram. I just go with it, right? <laughs> I'm not about to make a fuss or get picky because I'm a peacemaker mediator at heart. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, is is there a reason I should have a problem with it? And he's like, okay, all right. If you guys all want to go to Maurice's, then fine. So we pull off the expressway. We pull up to this place. Now, I can't remember if on the property in the parking lot, they had both the American and the Confederate flag flying. Oh. But... You know, that's just something that you know you're going to come across when you're in South Carolina. Like, a lot of people are going to fly it. Well, we walk in. And, Jenny, so their their foyer slash hallway leading up to the counter is this, like, long L-shaped hallway. Mm-hmm. And lying down the bottom in the, in the, the of the L, the base of the L, and headed up the neck towards the counter where you order the food are these book tables set up. And all of these books on this book table is white supremacist literature, like explicitly white supremacist literature, like why slavery was good for the Negro. I, I kid you not. Like, I'm just sitting here like, well, you've got to be kidding me. So all my cohorts in ministry come in, they see it, they're horrified and shocked too. They're like, what do we do? And everybody's looking at me and they're like, well, what do you, what do you want to do? Do you want to, do you want to go somewhere else? Or do you want to, you know, go, you, you, you want to just stay here? You know, you feel okay and all this and, of course, me being a mediator, peacemaker, not wanting to upset anyone or not wanting to be difficult. I'm just like, you know, let's let's just get our food and eat and go. So we end up ordering. Uh, our food is brought to the table. The executive pastor bring, you know, he he's he is absolutely adamant that he's checking my food to make sure nothing suspect was put in it first. Wow. And we left. Now, in hindsight, one, I I wish I would have handled it differently. But at the same time, like I'm aware of as a black man, how my behaviors, behaviors that are usually accepted in white people are going to be perceived differently. So if I show my anger or upset, I might be perceived as an angry black man. Right. When I had every right to be absolutely ticked off because that guy who said, Cedric, are you okay with going here? He knew. He absolutely knew what was in that restaurant and what they stood for. And he said nothing. He let me walk into that situation. Yeah. And then on top of that, and I had a friend when I was sharing this story with them, um, he said, why were they asking you what to do? You should have said to them, no, what are you going to do? It's not on you as the person who's put in a dangerous position 
to decide what to do. Like that's on them. And he says, and, and that's so often the problem in America is that, you know, you you guys as black people are the ones that are the ones put in this predicament where race is thrust upon you, but then you're also expected to resolve it. And so here's where the history part comes up into play. So I recently learned that the owner of this uh, barbecue joint, Maurice's, Maurice was an actual guy that in 1968 had a case go to the Supreme Court because he wanted to be able to maintain his ability to discriminate against serving against people of color. No way. He also ran for state office. Oh. It's 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 Piggy Park was the name of it back in the day. Piggy Park versus something or another. I can't remember the last name of the of the people that brought the case, the discrimination case against him. But this is this is a restaurant that actually had a history that went all the way to the Supreme Court. And this is why I think it's so important for people to learn our history, because then you end up going places and doing things and putting people in dangerous predicaments. You know, and in this kind of something else that I've been thinking about here is, you know, people, people have to learn history, right? But they also have to have a desire. And they have to uh, you know, understand that their opinions have been shaped by things. So it's yeah. really challenging to even get people to a point where they care enough to learn about this. Yes. And, and so for me, I'm focusing on speaking to whoever will listen, right? But but yes. in my mind, I'm, I'm sort of approaching people who have been in my situation where they're in, maybe they grew up with a very similar history or lack of history. And, you know, I'm just trying to shake them awake and say, this does matter. This is important. There's more to this than political pandering. And the thing yeah. that I keep running into are these ideas from people that, you know, politics plays yes. a role in this narration to the extent that it's all political. And so I'd get into these conversations with people talking about, you know, uh, institutionalized racism and, and, you know, the school to prison pipeline and all of these things. And they would keep coming back at me about politics. And I'm like, wait a second, I haven't talked politics at all in this. You assume, mm -hmm. and, and people assume ad nauseum that I'm a, a left wing liberal <laughs> Democrat, which is amusing because my roots actually long, long ago were very like libertarian and conservative right. in some ways. And so I'm I'm always amazed like why why is it you hear politics when I talk about this? So there are all of these things that we need to sort of unwind in a sense and and be able to clear a path so that we can even see we don't have a good understanding historically. And yet, yes. ironically, everybody's got an opinion about racism, right? They don't talk about it. They don't think it exists, but they've got a strong opinion about it. Oh, yeah. yeah. And nobody wants to actually figure out like, well, why do I have an opinion? And in particularly, the thing I want to ask my white counterparts who live in white spaces, like you guys have opinions about something that you have zero ability to actually have an opinion on. How did you come to this strong opinion? You know? Well, what I've started to do with those folks, again, as I've learned more and more, I tell mm -hmm. them like, yeah, you know what? Here's the reality. Anytime I talk about racial or gender 
inequality, it is inherently political because the only way that the rights of people of color and women in this country were recognized was through the political process. Yep. So like, yeah, they're, they're right. It's political, but not for the reason that they are accusing you of it being political, which then makes them have to, again, do their work. <laughs> it, and that's something it, I really appreciate, like with you guys on your podcast, you have an expectation that people are also going to do their work. And you'll yeah. say a lot, you go out, you do the research, you know, and, and study history here. And I mm -hmm. think that is essential here. Yeah. Well, and, and the interesting thing, I was thinking about this the other day, you know, there's this big emphasis on free thinking. Right. And, you know, you can be a free thinker and still be wrong. We've never had so much free information at our fingertips, and yet we don't utilize it. Okay. That's going to wrap up the show for today. I really want to leave us with that thought that Cedric just shared, that we have access to so much free information today, and we do not utilize it. I think back to when I was younger. I'm not that old. I'm 41. But back when I was growing up, our access of information was on my bookshelf, and it was the Encyclopedia Britannica that my parents bought from some door-to-door -door salesmen. We live in such a unique and amazing time, and we have opportunities to use social media for good. It's a place where we can connect with people, get to know people, encourage people, encourage dialogue that's respectful. It is a place where we can also learn from others, and we can use the internet, and we can use all of these resources to learn more and to make change. And so like Cedric and Sanchez say on their show, do the work. Tune in next week for part two of my conversations with Cedric. And in the meantime, if you haven't checked out their podcast, go to iTunes and look up Token Confessions and give it a listen. 